If you would begin with me by reading verses 1 through 3 together, it should be on the screen, or if you have your Bible or an app that you use, go ahead and read with me Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 3, and then we'll jump into the word together. It says, Now, as the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God, so when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. So we're going to pause there for a minute because there's something to be understood about what just happened and what's being said. Okay, because throughout the story of what we've talked about in regards to Peter and his heart and the change that God had to do in him and that process that he was getting him ready for throughout his traveling. Remember, he went to Lydda, he went to Joppa, he stayed with Simon the Tanner, all the while preparing him for what was about to happen in the home of Cornelius and all those that had gathered together. That a Jew was hanging out with these Gentiles for shame. And that was something that Peter had to reconcile in his heart, and the Lord had to break down that wall. But what we now see is how that mindset was so entrenched in the Jewish way that when word received, or went, got back to Jerusalem, that mindset was still there. And so they called out Peter and said, what are you doing? So, just like any family school, church, any institution, word travels insanely fast through that proverbial grapevine, doesn't it? Word spread. But something was happening in the church. But more importantly, more uh, frightfully, it was happening in this Gentile community. But due to the nature of what took place, these Christian Jews, this was the circumcision party. These are Jews that were believers, but they were so extremely critical and so entrenched in their legalistic, law-abiding ways, they were still blinded to the hope of the gospel available to everybody. But who did they call out? The Gentiles? No. Called out Peter, didn't they? They had a problem with Peter. Just like we do, right? We just assume anybody that's not of the faith or of the church or of Christianity or of whatever title we want to put on it, that if they're outside of that, we just go, well, duh, of course they're not going to act that way. They're sinners. They're horrible. They're wretched. They, they're blind. They don't understand. They're good for nothing. But those in the church, for shame if you do this or that. That's what's going on here. Because I think it was more of a thought of, like, what's going to happen to us? How is this going to reflect on us, the true church and followers of Jesus? Would this bring on more persecution? Who knows of the validity of these other people's faith? They could have just used that and turned around and, and attacked us and, and persecuted us even more so. Because remember... In chapter 8, that persecution at the end of 7 and beginning of 8 really began under the leadership of Saul and the Pharisees, didn't it? That persecution started to drive people out, so they're maybe a little afraid of that. But ultimately, it's Peter was breaking tradition. 
was breaking custom. Was he breaking the word of God? No. He was breaking their own personal traditions and customs that they built in to their religious practice. So this is kind of a repeat, isn't it? Didn't we talk about this with Peter? And here we are talking about it again with the church in Jerusalem. So those walls still needed to be torn down. Still things that needed to happen to make that understood. But remember, his own church is kind of attacking him. But in the words and promises of Jesus, if the world hates you, no matter where they are, don't forget they hated me first. Didn't Jesus receive the same grief? from the other religious elite in his day when he was ministering on earth and and fulfilling his purpose and bringing that gospel message to everybody. In fact, in our early studies of the book of Mark, when he called Matthew or Levi to be a disciple, he then immediately communes with Matthew, these tax collectors and other sinners. And and we read in Mark chapter 2 what these religious entrenched uh, elite People had said about that. They said in Mark 2, 15, and, and he reclined at the table in Matthew's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him and the scribes of the Pharisees. When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no, have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So Jesus' declaration in that moment of who he was going to reach, because sinners involved everybody across the board. There was no hiding it at all. So this is Peter's report back to the mothership, the church in Jerusalem. And what we do now is we basically summarize verses 4 through 18. In verses 4 through 18 of chapter 11, what you get is Peter's response to this accusation of sorts. And so what he does is recount everything that had just happened in chapter 10, almost word for word. So we're going to summarize that once again. If you uh, were were not with us or, or missed that study of chapter 10, Go back, it's saved, it's on the website, it's on YouTube. Review that story of what took place. Because in verses 4 through 18 of chapter 11, it's a review. He just tells the story once again. So we're not going to read it again, but yet summarize it in four unique ways of what took place. Kind of refresh our memory of what happened. And so he recounts that story of, of the Holy Spirit falling on the Gentiles at Cornelius' house, signifying to the Jews and the Christians and followers of Christ that the gospel is available to all. But it took place in four ways. Number one, through a vision for Peter. Remember that vision that God gave Peter of that sheet descending and all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds were in that sheet. And he used animals and food to signify to Peter that the Holy Spirit, the salvation, was available to all. But that vision was given to Peter by God. Number two, the travel. The travel of Peter from Joppa on up to Cornelius' house. 
the travel of Cornelius's two servants and men that went and three men that went down to, to Joppa to find Peter. All of that ordained by the Holy Spirit through the angels speaking to Cornelius and the Holy Spirit speaking to Peter. Number three, the message itself. When Peter arrives at Cornelius' house and he gives this gospel message of salvation in the name of Jesus Christ through the scriptures. And it was at that moment, remember, before his message was even concluded, the Holy Spirit falls and baptizes all those in the house. But that truth was established on Jesus. And then that baptism of the Holy Spirit, ordained by all three, the triune Godhead, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we know that because of what we read in verse 17 of chapter 11. Read it with me. It says, if then God gave the same gift, so there's two, God gave the same gift, speaking of what? The Holy Spirit. To them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's the third. God gave the gift of the Holy Spirit when you believe in Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? What a great statement. When God moves in every respect, who are we to get in the way? Who are we to stand there as Peter did and say, oh, no, Lord, I don't eat anything unclean. That is not the plan for my life. But he had to tell him three times, saying, oh, yes, it is. No, when God moves, who are we? Except to be open and available and willing to say, God, use me. But that whole story, that whole outpouring of the Spirit, ordained by the triune God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, let's look at what happens now. What we read in verse 18 of chapter 11. It says, When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Does that mean necessarily that all the, the, the Jews in Jerusalem understood and, and were fine with the Gentiles receiving salvation? Well, they could say the words, but we know there is still a process that needs to happen in our hearts. That process of sanctification, that process of, of God breaking down whatever he needs to break down so that we see everybody without what? Judgment, without distinction, without hesitation, without any preconceived notion about who they are or where they're from or what they look like or what they sound like or whatever else because the gospel is available to everybody. So it'll take some more time. But what we do now is we change gears. We shift gears in that the gospel is going to continue to spread. Wasn't that the promise of Jesus? Go to Jerusalem and wait. And there you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and what? To the very ends of the earth, right? To the very ends of the earth. And we saw that happen as they continued to preach in and around Jerusalem through Acts 2, 3, and 4, and Peter's message, and, and the gospel of salvation reaching thousands of people. And then the disciples spread out into uh, Judea and Samaria, and into uh, up north and throughout 
what we're seeing now. The, the Ethiopian eunuchs taking that gospel message of hope back to Egypt, down into the continent of Africa. And so what we see today now is that gospel message continuing to spread now a little more north into what we know of today as Europe, Asia, Turkey, etc. That's what we're going to look at now. So read with me verses 19 through 21 of chapter 11. It says, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were also some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also. Preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So in a very short way, you see that gospel advancing. You see people, because of this persecution, see what God allows when, when he allows trials, when he allows tribulation, persecution, or otherwise into your life, there is a purpose. If he moves you to one place or another, be aware that he may be readying you to speak the truth into somebody's life. Just be aware of that. Why is this happening to me, God? And he's up there going, are you ready to be used? That's what we need to take away from that, that persecution. So even trials have their purpose. But what do we see? We see here the church on mission. Not just the disciples apostles we see the whole church now moving into this commission that they've been given by god just because we might be visual people i want you to take a look at what we're talking about here if you can put up that map Cammy, if you guys can see that you see where jerusalem is there in the bottom right and, and caesarea where the holy spirit fell on on cornelius's house and and, and gentiles you see Antioch up there on, on the upper portion of what's called Syria. You see Tarsus up there, which is where Paul or Saul was from, right? Where he is now, as he's been kind of been waiting, as he's been continuing in his ministry, unheard of in, God, in the Gospels, but continuing to work for the Lord. But this is kind of the area now that is being used and people traveling from Cyrene down here on up to Antioch from the island of Cyprus over to Antioch and up. And Antioch is going to become this central point, uh, a commissioning city that is going to send out the church even further and beyond that. <clears throat> it is going to be a city that Paul would adopt as almost his headquarters to travel on, as we'll get into later in the book of Acts, as he seeks to bring the gospel to, to more and more places. But you see the persecuted church spreading the gospel. It isn't talking about just the disciples, the original 12 anymore. It's talking about men from where? From Cyprus and Cyrene and Phoenicia traveling to Antioch. Why Antioch? Antioch is a very important city in the Roman Empire. You have Rome itself, which you see on the map up there. You see the Italian boot. You guys know where Rome is. The number one most populated city in the Roman Empire. And if you look at the northern part of Africa, you see the city Alexandria up there. Or down there, excuse me. The number two most populated city in the Roman Empire. 
And then you have Antioch, the third most populous city in the Roman Empire. And when we say most populous, we're talking about anywhere from 500 to 800,000 people, according to record. Central hub of commerce, politics, and empire. So much happening in the city. Comparatively, I mean, if you look at our three most populous cities, you'd be like New York City, Los Angeles. Anybody want to guess what the third most populous city in the U.S. is? Not Miami. Anybody Cubs fans? Chicago. Chicago. Chicago is the third most populous city in in. America. So it's like everybody looks at Chicago going, we need to go to Chicago. We need to bring the gospel to Chicago. I don't know why. But that's what Antioch was to the Roman Empire. The Christian community, the church, were living life on mission. I know we've said that a lot about our own church here, Refuge City. To be a church that moves and, 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 and goes to the city that God has called us to. And right now, that's Lake Elsinore City. To go and, and, and present the gospel in, in various ways that we can. Because individually, every single person should live life on mission for Jesus. But yet, we're all a part of something greater than ourselves, aren't we? We're all a part of this thing called the church. Individually, we've been given the commission to go and preach the good news, share the gospel. But yet we're a part of this larger body of believers who are doing the same. And so that's what we see here in these, these few verses. That they're going out, they're sharing the gospel, both with Jews and with Gentiles. It said here, some were preaching exclusively to the Jews. They wanted to give the Jewish population the hope of the gospel in Jesus' name and open their eyes to what they had been missing. And yet some, it said, some decided, like Saul, I'm going to bring that gospel message of hope to the Greeks and the, the other Gentiles, the, the non-believing Jews. Those were the Hellenists, Greek-speaking non-Jews up in this portion of the land. They need the gospel as well. But they're living on mission. Because they determined to see the value in everybody. All people. Through the lens of God's grace. What does everyone deserve? What does everyone deserve? Regardless of who they are or where they're from. Salvation. Hope. The gospel message of Jesus Christ. You know how oftentimes they'll receive that? Through the grace that we extend to them. Not because of who we are, but the grace that we've been given by Christ, by God himself. And show that grace to others. And we do this as set apart, as, as scripture calls us, set apart individuals. Why are we set apart? Because we're not supposed to be of this world. God has placed us in this world to bring the gospel message of salvation and hope and grace to all people. But we're set apart. Set apart for what? Holiness, sanctification, purity. All those things that, that God wants for us in our life. We are set apart. Not because we're more special than anybody else. 
but to be used as a vessel for the hope of salvation. 2 Timothy 2, verse 21 says, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Who's the master of the house? In this case, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit that takes up residence in this house, in this vessel that we call a body. That while we are here, we're to be used for His good purposes, His good work. A missional Christian is one that understands they need to be a part of something larger than themselves. We cannot tackle this city, tackle this community, even tackle our own family on our own. We need to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. That's what the church is. This is the purpose of the church. What did it say in verse 21? And the hand of the Lord was with them. That is so crucial to understand in all that we do, isn't it? That God is with us. That's why we pause enough to recognize the hand of God in our life. We pause enough to say, Holy Spirit, do your work. Show me where you need to use me. Show me and, and teach me and tell me what it is I need to say to this individual or these people or, or, or myself as I look in the mirror getting ready to go out to be used. We need to recognize the Holy Spirit in our life. But it's the promise of God through Scripture that He is with us. Joshua 1.9 Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. What does he say? Do not, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Jesus spoke very similar words when he gave the commission to us all to go, therefore, and preach the gospel. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and what? I am with you wherever you go. Jesus said, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So at the heart of this movement is the response, though, of this great number of people that were coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And I want us to understand this because this is at the heart of everything that we share. It said in verse 26, no, excuse me, 21, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, we could skip over that pretty quickly. But we need to understand the very importance of those two words. They believed. What is another word for that? They had faith in the name and power and salvation of Jesus Christ. And they turned to the Lord. If you're turning to the Lord, what are you turning from? Sin. Your old ways. And what do we call that? Repentance. Faith and repentance needs to be a part of everything that we are, and everything that we do, and everything that we give away. We cannot forget to mention repentance if we're sharing the gospel of salvation. Because Jesus can't just be one more thing, a part of everybody's life. 
He needs to be the only thing, which means people need to understand, they need to forsake and turn away from anything that is contrary and contradictory to the message of Jesus Christ. Faith and repentance, belief and turning, that's what it's all about. It has to be. It has to be. Let's look at verses 22 through 26 of chapter 11. It says, The report of this came to the ears of the church of Jerusalem. See, there's that grapevine again. It's carrying on. The report of this. What is this? Everything we just talked about, the gospel message being preached in and throughout Antioch up in Syria. The gospel message is turning the lives of a great many people, it says. Jews and Gentiles alike. And so all of a sudden, we're getting another report of this trickling down to Jerusalem. It says, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. There he is again. Remember talking about Barnabas before? A man of great encouragement. Actually, what his name means. They sent Barnabas up to Antioch. And when he had come, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. So if we see the gospel movement and the church and Christians living on mission... What we see now is the church, Christians, being full of grace. When they sent Barnabas up to Antioch, what did he witness? He witnessed grace. He saw grace. He heard grace. Now, what do we know about grace? How do we define it? God's unmerited favor. God's undeserved favor that he shows to us. Right, Because when we put our faith in him, it is by grace, through faith, that we're saved. And so when Barnabas went to Antioch, he saw and observed grace. I heard somebody say, the divine, grace is the divine influence on the heart and its reflection in our life. So what does grace look like? I know we use that church word all the time. Or we just use it in regards to prayer. Let's say grace. But if we say grace, then grace can be observable. It can be heard. It can be witnessed. So what does grace look like and sound like in the life of a Christian? A community defined by grace will show grace towards those who need grace. So again, it's extremely observable. And in my humble opinion, grace reveals itself in gratitude. Do you just feel gratitude? No. You show gratitude, don't you? How do you show gratitude to those around you? What does that look like? What does that sound like? It has a semblance of peace doesn't it? Gratitude is a semblance of thanksgiving, gratefulness, joy. This is the grace that Barnabas was sensing. 
Anybody ever travel to the heart of Los Angeles, the heart of New York City, the heart of Chicago, or dare I say the heart of Las Vegas? Do you roll into those towns and observe and look around and go, wow, these cities are full of grace? No, because you don't hear grace. You hear honking horns. You hear anger. You hear yelling. God forbid you hear gunshots and violence. You hear all kinds of words being spoken apart from grace. You don't get the sense of peace and gratitude and joy in the heart of these major cities, do you? But yet, when God's word is spoken, when God's word moves with his people, where God is, there is what? Grace, peace, joy, hope. That's what Barnabas was witnessing. In a metropolis, in the third most populous city in the Roman Empire, he witnessed grace, observable grace. How awesome would that have been? What would that have looked like? But a grace-filled Christian will seek to encourage others. Isn't that what Barnabas was doing? He was encouraging the church, telling them, keep going, keep doing what you're doing. I can sense and I can see, I can hear what God is doing in this town. Keep it up. In fact, this became a regular occurrence for Barnabas and Paul as they would travel together. If we jump ahead a couple chapters in Acts 13, it says Paul and Barnabas, who as they spoke with the church, urged them to continue in the grace of God. In chapter 14, we read that they were strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. What we would read in the book of James, chapter 1, verse 12, says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And let me give you one more in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and, the, and, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Would you agree that there is a necessity to be encouraged by others in the faith? Yeah. Why do we need that encouragement? Why is that necessary? Because we can just as easily fall out of faith. We could be one step, one moment, one selfish act from being exactly who we were before Christ. If we can all agree to that. So we need that constant encouragement to carry on, continue on, remain steadfast. Not only in trial, because again, as we talked about, when trials come, when tribulations come, when those storms happen in life, be very easy to fall on our knees and appeal to God above for his grace and his help. But again, even in times of peace, in times of goodness, in times of content, there is that need to continue to carry on in grace and favor and, and faith in the Lord. We need that. That's what this is. It's why we gather. It's why you're so faithful to come week after, <coughs> excuse me, week after week after week 
So hopefully you are encouraged, but you're also encouraging others in the faith. If we look at, the, at verse 26 again, in the first part of verse 26, it says, And when he had found him, meaning Barnabas, when he went to find Saul, it says he brought him down to Antioch because there were so many that were coming to faith in Christ. Barnabas said, I'm, I, I can't handle this. <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for what you're doing, but I need help. And so the one that he brought into the fold, remember Barnabas is the one that built that bridge between Saul and the church in Jerusalem. So he goes to Tarsus and says, I need your help. Let's go. Come with me. So he brings Saul to Antioch, and it says there that they spent a year there meeting with the church, encouraging the church, teaching them the ways of Jesus Christ and Scripture, building up the church in Antioch, in this metropolis, so that others could carry on and do what they're called to do. See, a Christian gathers with other like-minded Christians to learn, to grow in their faith, to encourage, and also be encouraged. That's why this is so important. The church needs to gather. People need to be in this room together. We need to be in ministry together. We need to be in the Word together. We need to be living life together. Not 24-7, I get that. But in all that we do, we need to, as much as possible, gather together because of the importance of what that does for us to go and continue on, carry on in faith and in ministry. That's why Hebrews 10, 24 through 25 says, Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the more and more we continue on in this life, and the more and more we observe what's going on, not only here in our city, in our state, in our, our country, but also around the world, the day is drawing near. Jesus is coming soon. So what are we going to do as his church to give others the hope that we have? And no matter what may come, our hope is in Christ. Other people need to hear that, don't they? So we do that together as the church. In verse 26, in the second half, it says, And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. We had not seen that term before, but it is a term that we proudly grab onto, isn't it? And when you tell people, what do you believe in, or, or who are you, what, do, what is your religion, more than likely you're going to say, I'm a Christian. Because that is our title. What does Christian mean, though? You, you break it up into two parts. Here's a little English vocabulary lesson for you. What does Christ mean? They weren't called Jesusians. Jesus was a common name. Like a John Smith. Jesus was a common name. But Christ means what? Messiah. Savior. And if you take I-A-N, like we're all Californians. It's not something we wear with pride right now, but we're all Californians because we are a part of the party of people that live in the state of California. We're Californians. So as Christians, we are people 
that belong to the party of Christ. We connect with Christ. That's why we're called Christians. Now, historically, it has been passed down that the term Christian, the name Christian that was given to these people was a term of derision. It was to make fun of them. It was to mock them. Now, that's kind of throughout history is kind of what's been handed down. That may not be the case. They're just associating these people now that are believing in Jesus Christ as Christians, but it's a title nonetheless. See, prior to this, throughout Scripture, people following Jesus were referred to as disciples, as saints, as believers, brothers or sisters, witnesses. As we recently learned, followers of the way. Wasn't that what Saul was going to go do to Damascus? He was going to go find followers of the way and imprison them and put them to, put them to death if need be. But now that same group has a new title, Christian. Now, how many times is the word Christian used in Scripture? Three times. We just mentioned one. There's another one that comes later on in Acts chapter 26. When Paul is on trial, he is imprisoned and he's on trial for his faith because he's been sharing the gospel. And it's starting to offend a lot of people. And he stands before King Agrippa. And Paul, in all his boldness and courage, shares the gospel with the king. And the king's response to him in Acts 26 is, So you would persuade me to be a Christian? But what is the circumstance in which that name is used? He is in prison and on trial for his faith. In Acts 11, they were first called Christians in Antioch because the gospel had spread because of what? Persecution. And the third time that the word Christian is used is in 1 Peter chapter 4. In verse 16, Peter writes, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let them not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. So three times the word Christian is used in Scripture. Three times its context is trial and persecution. Are you going to carry that name proudly? Be aware of what it comes with. And that's a beautiful promise. Because Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If you identify with me, if you belong to my family, who I am, then you're going to be persecuted but that the name of God, the name of Christ, be lifted up. He is our life. He is the one who gave you life. So it is absolutely something we identify with. Let's look at the last few verses of chapter 11. Verses 27 through 30. Reads, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this would take place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So we saw a church on mission. We saw individual Christians going out, leaving their homeland to take the gospel to everybody that they could. 
We saw, uh, we saw Christians and we saw a church defined by grace. We saw new people identified by a new name in Christ. And now what do we hear? We see this church, we see Christians defined by their benevolence, by their giving. Because the church is to be that. Through a God-ordained prophetic vision of an imminent famine, the Antioch church generously gave to their fellow brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. See, historical record would record a famine taking place during the reign of Claudius. Between the year, he reigned between 41 and 54 A.D. And historical record shows that Judea and Jerusalem felt the, their famine the worst in the years 45 and 46 A.D. So that prophetic vision given to Agabus came true. And so by faith, the church in Antioch said, we need to take care of those who have taken care of us. They said this word of Christ, this new revelation, this hope in Jesus came from our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. So let's do what we can within our ability to give back to them in their time of need. And that's what they did. See, a Christian, the church is benevolent and generous in their giving to those that they know of in need. Verse 29 said, so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability. See, Acts 2, when the church came together, they took all their money and all their possessions and all everything they had, put it into one big pot, right? Now, that was an example of what they did as this brand new church living together. But now what we see here is they had to determine according to their own ability. If that was two little mites that they could rub together, then they gave. And if it was a whole lot more because of their ability to, they gave. But the church determined to give. They gave generously, they gave willingly, and they gave cheerfully knowing it was going to bless their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. See, 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. We give. We give of our time. We give our lives. We give what treasure God has blessed us with and give away to those in need. But we do it cheerfully. Because we know that every good and perfect gift has come down from our Father in heaven. Nothing we have belongs to us. But whatever we can give within our ability, we do so for the glory of God. Because we're grateful to him because of the grace that he's given us. Proverbs 22, verse 9, if I read it in the New Living Translation, says, Blessed are those who are generous because they feed the poor. When we see a need of somebody that's that's greater than our own. We may be in need. And we could probably look at our own life and go, I need this, I need this, and I need this. But when we look outside of ourselves, and we see people living on the street, people who have nothing, literally nothing, which we experienced a few weeks ago, whose only hope was to walk into a church, and all he had with him was underwear. That was it. There are people deserving and worthy of provision. If we see that, we need to do what we can within our ability 
to meet that need. In Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it says, In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, meaning just giving ourselves away for the sake of the gospel, preaching and teaching and serving and doing whatever God calls us to do within our ability. We remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So what do we look at in chapter 11? We look at the expansion of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and Caesarea and Joppa and Lydda and all the way up to Antioch and Syria and beyond as we're going to continue to study. But what we see is the mark of a Christian. The marks of a believer, a follower of the way, a saint. What does that look like? What did we talk about? From the very beginning of the chapter, in a review of chapter 10, we said that a Christian shows no partiality. If God shows no distinction or hesitation, that his gospel is worth to everybody without hesitation, then we as Christians who belong to the party of Christ show no partiality to anybody. Number two, that we share God's word and preach the gospel, period. It's what we've been commissioned to do. Make disciples, and you make disciples by sharing his good news based on the word of God and give it away as often as the Holy Spirit leads you to do so. Number three, we are Christians who live on mission by the grace of God. If that's in our home, if that's in our community, if that's at work, if that's in the church, if that's doing whatever God calls us to do, we live on mission by the grace of God. And number four, in grace, we show grace. We are Christians, we are people who show and demonstrate grace, gratitude, and joy, showing favor to others. Number five, in doing so, to continue to be encouraged in that, in our ministry, and all that we've been called to do, we gather together with other like-minded Christians, other believers, regularly, to grow in faith and understanding, to encourage and be encouraged. Number six, we are benevolent people, willing to give, cheerfully giving, generously giving, within our ability to do so, to those who are in need. And finally, number seven, ultimately, we, as a Christian, we identify with the one fully in every way whose name we bear. Messiah, our Savior, we belong to him and therefore are his representatives on earth to do all that he calls us to do. Let me read one passage of scripture for us that really sums this up. And then we'll go into a time of communion. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 through 21. Just listen to these words. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves. But for him who for their sake died and was raised. So from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old have, has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting us to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is a beautiful summation of what we just went through. That we, because Christ died for us, we have died to our old ways. And we live brand new with the ministry of reconciliation. What does that mean? That God simply has brought us near. That's what reconciliation means, to be brought near. He came to seek and save the lost. He came to save sinners. And by doing so, he brought them near into his family. And that is the hope and joy and comfort we have in Jesus' name. And therefore have been given that ministry. God through us, by his Holy Spirit's empowerment and grace, to go and have the ministry of reconciliation and let others know who need that hope to bring them near. To give them an understanding of the hope of Jesus Christ. That's what we're to do. That's the church. That's what it means to be a Christian. And so much more we can add to that. But at least for Acts 11, that's what it is to be a Christian. Amen?